Hey, Bob Cooney here with another edition of the Practicality of VR webinar series brought to you by HTC Vive, where we bring to the surface use cases of people actually using virtual reality technology to solve real problems in the real world today. And today we're going to talk about virtual reality in multi-user healthcare environments. Um, and it's it's actually, it's being used, it's solving problems, and we've got two experts in the field that are leading the charge of applying virtual reality in the healthcare environment. Nicole Brown and Ryan Ribera. Did I get that right, Ryan? Yeah, that was perfect. That before we started, but that's okay. It's how I roll. Um, Nicole, you have been doing this for an awfully long time. You're the... Um, you're at the Cleveland Clinic and you've been doing training in VR, is it for 13 years? Is that possible? Not with VR, but I have been doing simulation-based training for 13 years. VR is new to the uh, the arsenal, so to speak. Yeah, cool. And um, and Ryan, you're you're at Stanford, you've got Simex. Talk to us. What's your background and how did you how'd you get into this? So uh, like I said, I'm an emergency medicine physician and assistant professor out here at Stanford and also the founder of Simax. And we have been at it for about a decade, so which is, I think, probably about as long as one can be at it, at least with the modern VR technologies. And as far as how we got into it, I actually started the company when I was a medical student and it was not necessarily out of the blue. I had a background in entrepreneurship and had been part of a number of other health tech companies prior to that. But actually what spurred me on more was um, at the time I was very involved in patient safety and I was working for CMS and other government agencies. And also I was on the board of trustees of the American Medical Association working on public health efforts to try to improve patient safety and eventually got interested in simulation as a mechanism for doing that because you know, that's how the airline industry became so safe. That's why we all know that you're more likely to die driving to the airport than flying across the countries because they do a lot of high quality sim. And you know, at the time I was a medical student doing a lot of traditional sim, and there's a lot of great things about you know mannequin-based and, and other traditional simulation methods, but there's also some really substantial limitations. And at the time, you know, VR was something that people were talking about very preliminarily. This was this was 2013, but it sure seemed like a great opportunity to be able to inject you know a fair amount of visual realism through you know, the variety of patients you can present, the variety of environments you can present. And also be able to have a lot more logistical flexibility, you know, not have to have a multi-million dollar sim center necessarily, but being able to run sims, you know, in the empty classroom. And so that was kind of the potential that we saw for it. And we started building a team then, filed some initial patents. And for many years, it was mostly an R&D activity until um, the hardware matured and became more viable. And then we've been selling it ever since. Now, you, you mentioned sim centers, and we're going to get into pa patient safety in a second, but you mentioned sim centers. And, and so, Nicole, you've been doing simulation now for 13 years. Describe for the audience, what is a sim center? Yeah. So I have been a nurse now for, I hate to admit it, 22 years. And back when I was in nursing school, when we were training and learning, we used each other. We practiced um uh, IM injections uh, on my my classmates. We had to wear shorts and t-shirts to get in beds and practice pretend bed baths and changing linens and different techniques um, that are specific to nursing. We didn't have a lot of 
technology to support our learning. And what I have seen through my 22 years of healthcare experience is just the emergence of simulation centers. Um, they used to be just called skills labs in my in my arena, but simulation centers. Um, in whether it is an academic program or a hospital-based program can look very different. Um, where I work at the Cleveland Clinic, we have multiple sites and they are all designed to replicate the clinical environment, whether it is a surgical lab, if it's uh, an operating room, separate from a surgical lab, if it is a, a standard patient room, an emergency room, ambulatory centers. Uh, so they are specific spaces that allow people to practice what they may see or what they anticipate seeing, what they have seen, how they can improve their practice um, in a, a safe, controlled kind of way. A lot of those um, facilities are frequently associated with mannequins. But the fantastic thing about virtual reality is that you no longer really need that infrastructure. You need a wide open space and the internet. Um, and so we are seeing, we are exhausting all of our simulation room space for the amount of courses that we're doing in our, the nursing side of our simulation center is around 40 courses a month. Um, as an entire simulation center, we have about 36,000 um, encounters a year. Um, and so we're running out of space where virtual reality, we can go to an open conference room um, and drop people into some simulated environments and be able to do the exact same thing um, and sometimes even better than we could with me. Yeah, that's amazing. So and, and when you talk about training, is it so you said there, there was student training and then there's ongoing training. Is this something that everybody in the hospital environment has to go through ongoing training on a continual basis? <laughs> Brian, you rolled your eyes a little bit. I want your opinion on that at some point. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I'll let Nicole answer first. I was just going to say there's a big difference between have to, want to, and need to. <laughs> We're required to have some levels of certifications, depending on what your job description and um, clinical expertise and practices are. A lot of that is governed by the accrediting organizations. And each hospital system is going to be set up differently. But I can say that we see from students all the way to staff, we see the whole gamut within Cleveland Clinic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it, it is, um, I think, historically, simulation has been mostly limited to training environments, like your initial training as a nurse or a doctor or an EMT. And I think increasingly, though, it is being incorporated for those who are in active practice. And I think some of that is the result of nowadays CMS and others have more financial incentives for people to do things like, you know, comply with sepsis protocols and, and things like that. And so uh, even hospital systems now have some financial incentive to make sure that people are practicing in certain ways. And so really over the last especially five years, I feel like we've seen more hospitals and hospital systems start launching ongoing training programs and, and financing those. And I think that's a trend that's probably going to continue. Yeah. Now, I, I noticed one of the things that is there's a standardization challenge. I, I read it around hospitals, right, where, you know, even within a certain facility, different departments can have different versions of the same equipment. And so, I would imagine if you're trying to build a sim center and now all of a sudden you have to have like one copy of everything there, like it just becomes cost ineffective. And so how does VR apply to that? 
Yeah, I mean, you're definitely right. And that's, I, I think that is one of the reasons why simulation training has been more common in your initial training. This same thing applies to doctors and nurses, right? Like everyone going through nursing school learns approximately the same thing. And then at some point you get into practice and as a lot of your specialization occurs there and similar with, you know, doctors who then go to residency and then that's where they get their specialization. And so it's, it is easier to have a sim center that does kind of the same stuff every year for the same students. And it is tricky, but I mean, as Nicole was pointing out, you know, one of the benefits with VR is you really can just get like an empty room somewhere. And especially for hospital systems that do have that wide variety, like uh, you mentioned, that they need to train on, you know, setting up one room like a delivery room and one room like the OR and one room like your ED and one room like it, it'd be very resource intensive. And so I think the value add is the same there, actually, as it is for initial training, but probably just even more pronounced because you know, hospitals don't already have some centers a lot of the time, but they have conference rooms that they can just turn into an OR, turn into a delivery room, turn into whatever they need. Yeah. Nicole, so where you are at Cleveland Clinic, like how are you applying VR from a from a, a, a logistical and, and physical standpoint? Are you just repurposing like the employee lounge at times or are they giving you dedicated workspaces? What's it like there? Yeah. So um, looking at our, our virtual reality program, we really started about a year and a half ago, um, building, developing, piloting our program in our main campus, which is in Cleveland, Ohio. And we have been able to repurpose a previous office space within our education building. COVID the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> we had uh, people become remote employees. And so then we had some extra space. We took down the cubicles and moved things around. And that is now our, what we would call our dedicated virtual reality space. But we use it for other courses. We use it for other things. And so we can um, really look at any room that is open on our campus. I've got to say the amazing thing that we have found with virtual reality is that we do not have to be in the same place at the same time. And for an organization like the Cleveland Clinic, and I know there are many others that have multiple sites, we have the ability to get a headset to one individual that's 20 miles away from the other. And then the facilitator or the moderator can be in an, a third different location. And they all log in together and can practice simultaneously, even though they're not in the same place at the same time. And the next steps that we are doing is we have international locations. We have other national sites in different states. So we are looking at how do we incorporate those caregivers because standardization is very important. And how do we make sure that we are providing safe, effective care across our entire enterprise? What's the reaction of the people that, you know, you send them a headset and you say, okay, at this time, you're going to put on this headset, you're going to do this thing. What's the, what's the onboarding like? What are some of the challenges you have with friction there? And then what's their reaction? I'm curious. Ryan, I would love to hear your experience on this one. We have had some struggles, if I'm being completely honest. What, what and, and what have you struggled with? Like, where where's it been? Because I look, I've been doing virtual reality for 35 years, so you know, I, I and that's the reason I asked the question is because it's still yeah. the technology still has some friction with it, and it has massive benefits. But that's the reason we're not all using it every day. That's the reason we're not doing this in virtual reality, right? Is it's still just a little yeah. bit of friction. So where where do you where do you experience the pain points? And we can talk about how how as an industry we need to okay. we need to solve those. 
Well, for us, uh, two large pain points. And then Ryan, like I said, I'd love to hear what you have to say, but we're struggling to really grow our VR program because of our sheer volume. We have massive programs working with such a large organization. How do we scale VR in a feasible way? It's not uncommon for us to have learner groups of 13 at a time. You cannot put 13 people in a headset and have them provide care for the patient um, in a safe, effective manner. At least we've not been able to figure out how to do that. Um, <laughs> the the other and why is that? Do they get distracted? Is it just too hard to keep them um, bandwidth? physical space, running into each other, communication. And they're all complicated in the same room in that in, in your scenario. Mm-hmm. You're about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we do that style of VR where they're co-located. It's that that part is difficult for us. So we're we're working on some some workarounds, so to speak. And then the other part is we want to offer it to our um, international sites. We have the equipment, we're ready to go. But we're trying to figure out the shipping process. How do we ship lithium batteries um, to other places? And there is some level of a learning curve. So yes, VR is something that people have experienced in personal private lives. But what we've seen in the last year and a half is the large majority of the people that have come to us generally are more people that have at least maybe three to five years of clinical practice experience so that mid to upper 20 year olds and then older, they actually don't have the number of experience or the hours of experience that we would have expected. So we're having to start at the very beginning and do headset tutorials and then into a a sandbox environment before we can even get them into the scenario. So just that turnaround time is, is been challenging for us. And what's the best way to onboard someone? Yes. You have to teach them how to use VR. Then you have to teach them how to do the thing you want to teach them. Yeah. Interesting. And at that point they've been in the headset too long and they're like, I need a break. Yeah. Yeah. Ryan, what's your experience in that area? I will kind of echo that. So we have, um, both kind of our customers who we've spoken to about this, but then also we have some direct experience with this, which is that through the sales process, we often do remote demos and we ship people headsets and have to orient them remotely in this process. And I'll say that process has changed quite a bit over the last two or three years. Um, Cause there is, I think Nicole's right that it's not as widespread as we would like so far, but there is a big difference between now and two years ago in terms of what percentage of these people are like, oh yeah, I've used an Oculus before. I play Beat Saber every day, right? And when when that is true, it is drastically easier. <laughs> when that is not, then, you know, like I said, you got to orient people just to VR in general. And it, it is, it is, it's easy for me to forget now having been in VR headsets for nearly a decade, but it is pretty unintuitive to people. And actually watching was something that I found is very interesting is you can watch videos of VR experiences all day, but it is not. It is still surprising to people when they put on the headset. I don't know exactly what they're picturing when they watch a video of someone in VR, but they put it on and they're like, "Wait, I'm inside of it." And you know, when you're there remotely and you're saying, "Yeah, you can walk around," and they're sitting there very slowly shuffling their feet, and you're like, "No, just like walk like a normal person. It's okay." You know, <laughs> and and when they don't have any VR experience at all, that that is sometimes sometimes an insurmountable barrier. Occasionally, you meet someone, they just can't feel comfortable in that environment, you know, when you're trying to walk them through that remotely. 
much easier when you're in person and you can kind of put your hand on their shoulder and guide them a little bit and say, it's okay to take some steps. I'm watching out for you. Um, So that I would say is still kind of the biggest barrier. I would say once, once you get over someone being familiar with putting on a VR headset and walking around the room and being able to feel safe in that environment and knowing how to like point at things and pull triggers and, and that sort of thing, then orienting them to like the specific, you know, goal within that is less of a challenge. I don't know if that's what you've found, Nicole, but it's getting them into VR is the hardest part. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And so when it works well and you, and you either don't have those barriers or you get over those, what's the reaction to people once they kind of cross the chasm into, okay, I get it. I'm in VR. I'm okay with this. Frequently it's, that's so cool. (laughs) You just, they love it. I've seen people that they're at the end of their career and they have physical mobility challenges that anytime I see them, they are uh, lecturing, giving demonstrations, anything from a chair, put on a headset and you see them initially just sit there like, oh, this is neat. This is neat. Get up and start to move around the room and engage in the environment. Like I've never seen that. It's, it's astonishing how much people have left it. Yeah. I, I would say we, you know, we're fortunate to get to put people in these headsets every day. And that is one of the things that makes it just a really fun space to be involved in is how really excited people are about it. And it's, it's not just that it's like, Oh, it's a whiz bang, cool thing, but you really do see them get engaged in the medicine in a remarkable way. I mean, my, my favorite thing is when someone comes out of a headset and they don't really talk about the technology. They're like, you know what? I thought that they had a pericardio effusion, but then when we looked on ultrasound, they were, you know, because they've really bought into the scenario. And in some ways that, I, I mean, I've found that to be a lot easier in VR than in traditional simulation environments where you've got, you know, a mannequin, your instructor is hovering behind you, but you put in that headset, you forget where you are and you can really get, kind of engaged in the environment in a way that is really hard to mimic in traditional sim. And that's got to be a testament to the quality of the simulation though, too, right? I mean, yeah, but I, I mean, I, and this is, you're giving me an opportunity to pat ourselves on the back a little bit here, but um, I think people underestimate how much just the immersion of VR itself contributes to that suspension of disbelief. I mean, I'll say our product, we have not necessarily focused on graphical quality because we generally want to run on the wireless headsets and we have to you know, make compromises based on um, you know, those capabilities. Uh, but we've found that not to be necessarily a huge limiter in people buying into the scenarios. I think just the fact that when you move your head, there is a one-to-one matchup between what you feel internally and what you see and how the environment reacts to you walking around inside of it. I think that alone is a is a big chunk of the feeling of immersion and buying into it. And then, of course, yes, we do try to pay a lot of attention to make sure that things happen the way you expect them to happen, and that there's not a bunch of like pop ups everywhere, like just you know distracting from your belief that you're in a real medical encounter. You know, something that people have commented is the patient will look at them. Uh, just the act of a patient turning their head and looking in the direction of someone is in some ways alarming, but also it creates a lot of buy-in for people. Like this is real. Wait, they're looking at me. Oh my gosh, they're looking at me. And you see them get like closer and then some back away with depending on their reaction. It's very, very neat. Yeah. Interesting. And I wonder how does that, you know, so how does that affect learning and retention, right? Because, you know, when you're operating on a dummy, 
it's obviously a dummy, but if if you if that fantasy reality line blurs and now you're in a simulation and and the patient is actually reacting to what you're doing and looking at you, how how do you and is there any data on this as far as how that affects the the retention and the learning? Because we know that emotion is what anchors memory and I'm curious how those things might be related in, in your world. Yeah, I will, I will say, I, Nicole might know the data here better than I do, but it is, from what I understand, there's a fair amount of evidence that the better your simulated environment matches up to your real practice environment, the better the things you learn in that environment will cross over to the real world. And that just makes a lot of sense intuitively, right? Like, I mean, the, it's less mental steps for you to translate and convert what you learned in sim to real life when it's just like matches up one to one. And I think when we think about what does it mean for your sim environment to match up with real life, it's, you know, again, not just visual, it is also like psychosocial and environmentally. And I think that is one of the things we're able to do in VR in ways that are hard in traditional sim is create an environment that has everything you would have in real life and has some of the psychosocial complexity you would have in real life. And that is where, you know, as Nicole mentioned, that just the patient looking at you and talking to you. And when you say things like, we're going to start you on oxygen, and the patient says, well, why are you starting me on oxygen? Like, what, what value is that going to give? And like, just those little touches like that, that are not impossible to do in traditional sim, but they're hard to do. And they're pretty easy to do in VR, adds to that, that realism so that when you're there in the real environment, I, I think you're able to better translate, you know, what you've learned. So, so when you, you know, you, you just triggered a thought about what's going on. We're all watching, you know, large language model, AI, chat GPT, we're all fascinated by it. And, you know, and, and chat GPT now with the APIs are powering avatars and video games. And I'm seeing a lot of those demos out there. Um, how do you see that potentially impacting these simulations to make them more natural where the patients actually might be AI powered or are they now even? Well, I was, uh, now we can talk about it because we finally filed, we just filed a patent on this exactly. Um, so yeah, large language models, I think, present a new opportunity. There's a relatively long history of utilizing variations of AI to have conversations with virtual patients in medical sim. Um, like there's a lot of screen-based products that incorporate that sort of thing. But I think previous to LLMs, a lot of the models that were used previously had a lot of limitations. And I think the we still have problems on the voice recognition side, to be honest. That technology isn't fantastic. Um, but I think with LLMs, the kind of generations of realistic responses is going to be substantially improved. But I think in order to use it in these sims, it really has to be pretty high quality because there's a big conversational aspect to medicine that people often, if they're looking from the outside, they don't necessarily appreciate how big a part that is. And, you know, if your patient says something weird, you know, even 10% of the time, that really pulls you out of the sim, right? Because like it's, it, you talk a lot. And so that's, you know, four or five times in this sim, the patient says something completely off topic. It's going to be hard for you to stay engaged. And so at least for us at Simex, we have stuck with a, you know, pre-recorded audio that is triggered by your instructor um, because that allows the instructor to kind of dynamically ensure that they're having a realistic conversation with that individual. And that maximizes the realism for the person. It's obviously a huge pain. So um, we're hoping that we can use LLMs to take that burden off the instructor pretty soon. 
Yeah, cool. There's um, and there. So you talk about having an instructor. So how much of this is is it always instructor led? Is any of this kind of self driven? And what challenges does that create, Nicole, in the in the hospital and and the working environment? Yeah, so many different ways to accomplish virtual reality simulation. My role on our team is the really that fully immersive scenario-based simulation, uh, virtual reality simulation that is instructor-led. We do have other types of software and programs and things that are more student-driven, individual learners. I'm not going to talk about those. That's outside of my expertise. I know they exist. When we look at this uh, facilitator-driven, some of the challenges that I'm seeing through there is how do facilitators facilitate during simulation. So I work for our nursing institute. Like I said, I, I'm a nurse. It was ED critical care background, but I also work within our full interdisciplinary team. But nursing, we don't have doctors, yet we need orders to be written. So a facilitator will often jump into a scenario and function as a provider just to move the scenario along. And just today, we were working with a, a group that's wanting to do a simulation where they need someone to put in orders. But there's no provider. So how do we make that work? And so having to brainstorm some ideas and throwing them in a headset to be able to, you know, put in the orders and when do we put them in? Is it at the beginning? Is it at the end? And so really just having to talk through technology things that we didn't have to do when it was more of your mannequin based simulations. And what is the best way to introduce the scenarios? What is the, the best way to observe and then debrief the simulations? And if people are in different sites, do you have to get into a different platform to be able to debrief together? And so just a lot of um, a lot of questions that remain. Uh, an article just came out in clinical simulation and learning that talked about needing to still identify best practices for virtual reality facilitation. So lots of opportunity. I'm really excited to be a part of the, the beginning phases of it. One of the challenges is, you know, number of headsets or having enough headsets for everybody. Are you seeing, is there a hybrid solution where, you know, some people, I know a lot of platforms will, you know, you can be in VR or you can be on a mobile or you can be on desktop 2D, 3D. Are, are, are any of these solutions hybrid from that perspective or is everybody in VR or it's not happening? I can answer that. I mean, so definitely there are products that have hybrid solutions. And so there, there are, even within the medical training space, where you can run those, those very same scenarios, either uh, on your screen with a keyboard and mouse or through VR. We have not opted for that, just because you can imagine if from a uh, economy of development standpoint, that either means that you're developing two entirely different products, or you do what most in the market who take this approach have done and develop something that is kind of a less immersive version of VR, but it allows it to easily transition to a screen-based tool that accommodates points and clicks. And there's nothing wrong with that strategy. It has pros and cons. For us, though, we were kind of like a VR-first product. And the way that we do interactions in VR and such can't really just be like mapped to your keyboard and mouse and still accomplished in the same way. I mean, you're grabbing things with your hands and putting things together and opening drawers and doing all that kind of stuff. And so we've not done that. And I do think 
you, you have to make some decisions about trade-offs if you're going to go down that route from a development standpoint. I would also imagine if you're looking to replace a practical training environment from a simulation standpoint, like no one would consider just, hey, let's just not do that and do it on a smartphone, right? I mean, it's just the learning outcomes can't possibly be as good. Yeah, historically, those um, have been used for different purposes. Like, his, like people have screen-based tools, sim tools have existed alongside mannequins. And generally speaking, you don't do the same sims in screen as you would do with mannequins. As you point out, they do serve a different purpose. So you'd mentioned earlier, really concerned about pa- patient safety. And I see you were, you were part of a movie called, a uh, documentary in 2019 called To Air as Human. And I you know, did a quick, quick review of that. And it said the number three leading cause of death in the United States is its own healthcare system. And 1.7 million Americans experience a preventable mistake during medical care. And you know, up to 440,000 deaths annually um, from preventable um, errors in the healthcare system. So, what's you know, what are your hopes for you know for VR to be able? To, how do you think it can impact that? Like, look five years or even ten years down the road, because I know, you know, big regulated industries move slow to adopt new practices and new technologies. So that's just something that you know we're all up against. But where do you see five or ten years this this going, and what kind of you know, what kind of changes do you think we'll see? Yeah, so I, I have a lot of feelings about this. So um, definitely, you know, one of my hopes is that VR will make simulation so much easier to do that it will become a much more frequent part of our initial training, but also our maintenance of skills and practice. Like even practicing uh, airline pilots will go back to augment their experience with simulation from time to time. And you can imagine a world where, you know, I as an emergency medicine doctor, every month I do three shifts that are sim shifts and they're not there. I don't see any real patients, but, you know, based on an algorithm that looks at the patients that I'm actually seeing every day, it selects sims for me that kind of fill in the gaps, right? Because in emergency medicine, anything can walk in the door and you can go years without seeing a particular condition. And so having that type of regular simulation where you're able to kind of keep up those skills from patients you don't see on a regular basis, I think that would be phenomenal and it would have a huge impact. I mean, you can imagine an analogous thing for other specialties and for nursing and things like that have a huge impact on patient safety. And I think the, the other kind of big hope that I have is that it will help reduce the need for us to practice on real people. You know, um, every... Every generation of medicine always looks back on previous generations and is like, oh, that was so barbaric. I can't believe they did bloodletting or they used leeches or whatever it was. And so you're always like, well, surely that will happen to us as well. What is it that they will look back on us and say, well, that was so barbaric? And I think probably what it will be is that they will look back us back on us and say, I can't believe they practiced on real people. I can't believe they let someone who just read about something in a textbook go in and then do that procedure on somebody. And I think that simulation, even over the last couple of decades, has helped mitigate that. But it's still like, you know, you go do a chest tube on a mannequin once and it's not that realistic and then you do it on a real person. And so I'm hopeful that VR, again, because of the accessibility, uh, because of the added aspects of realism that we can incorporate, will lead us to a world where that doesn't have to happen. The first time that you go and, and you do something on a patient, you'll have done it. 100 times, 200 times. 
patients in virtual reality. And that'll be a lot better for patients and for trainees too. Now, we've been doing simulation in the healthcare um, arena for a decent amount of time. I mean, by no means generationally. But something that I've started to really question is while we've always had the best of intentions, are we setting ourselves up for failure? Um, I can speak, like I said, from the nursing side, but we train with one single patient at a time. That is standard onboarding practices, one patient at a time in an accelerated fashion and let's assess and what are we doing and, and move right along. That is not real life. I have never, I mean, I can't say the word never, but really I've never cared for one single patient in a shift. It's, it's always been multiple patients and having to filter and shift and sift through information coming from all angles, deciding what was important and what wasn't and what did I observe and what wasn't and collect and synthesize all simultaneously while answering call lights and responding to, to questions and all of the complexities that we don't include in our training as you become a clinically practicing licensed caregiver. And with virtual reality, we can just have multiple patients without needing multiple patients and space and training. And they're just right there at our fingertips. That's something that I am very passionate about and I'm very excited to see come through. Yeah, interesting. What are some of the, the institutional barriers? We talked about the friction at the, at the operational level but what are some of the institutional barriers um, for this to expand and become kind of part of the normal training curriculum in the medical industry? I mean, I will say, and maybe I'm optimistic, I don't think there are absolute institutional barriers. I think we have seen adoption growing substantially year over year as people just become familiar with the technology and as research advances showing that it is actually efficacious. I do think that, you know, um, people just haven't carved out budgets for it. Like initially they've carved out budgets for replacing their mannequins and for, you know, augmenting other traditional SIM tools. And so that's something we encounter from time to time is that this ends up being like a, on top of everything else purchase instead of, you know, replacing other things. And um, so that means that it's a little harder to find the money for it. I think also, you know, software business models are things that some institutions are still struggling with. We we have a licensing model, right? And we like many software companies because this is facilitated by our, um, you know, our cloud, and we are continuously updating it and everything like that. So we kind of need to have that type of model. And that, um, especially when we first started, that was unfamiliar for a lot of institutions. They're like, can't we just buy it and own it and put it on our own servers or whatever we have to do? They're like, well, no, actually, for a variety of reasons. Um, but that's also breaking down. I feel like we, we encounter concerns about that less frequently. Mine, just a very practical understanding, is something we didn't necessarily anticipate was the aspects of cybersecurity in our institution. Mm. And so we anticipated purchasing one type of a headset we were ready to go, had some shipped, and could not get these things to work, could not. And it was at least six months before we finally determined that that was not the right product and had to switch gears, had to go with the more expensive headset, but they're working great now. Um, so that is something that was a, a, a pain point 
But to Ryan's point, it's not wasn't that we couldn't overcome it, but it was definitely a pain point in the implementation. So there's a willingness and an acceptance. It's just a function of awareness and and time, maybe, it sounds like. You know, I I do think Nicole brings up a good point, though. Um, And I had neglected to mention this, like good um, mobile device management for VR is still potentially an issue, especially if you were to talk about it on a very large scale. If you were to have, you know, a thousand headsets deployed across an institution, being able to have the capability to monitor them remotely and update them remotely and things like that is still underdeveloped. Um, and, you know, I think there are people who are offering that more and more, but, you know, very often we find that educational institutions have a particular MDM that they use for everything for, and that may or may not be compatible with the VR headsets that they're bringing on. And that can be a real challenge. You'd mentioned, you know, the, 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 the we want to call them dummies, the mannequins. Sorry, they're not dummies. We want to respect them. They're mannequins. Right. Call them smarties and it'll be fine. Smarties. Okay. Uh, what's it cost for a mannequin for that, for that type of, uh, and do they have sensors in them? Like, I'm curious about what you're replacing in, in the VR, in the VR world. That's a complex question because there's so much of it depends. Um, there's a wide variety of mannequins and equipment. The majority of our mannequins are what we would consider high technology, where they um, have lung sounds, heart sounds, bowel sounds, chest rise, pulses. Some of them, this is a slightly higher technology, have the ability to like perspire or have liquid come out of their ears, you know, things that you don't necessarily ever need. But they have it. <laughs> we haven't found that one yet, but they'll blink their eyes and that's usually freaky enough. And they can replicate different vital signs and different heart sounds and lung sounds and things. But generally speaking, um, static, they lay in bed, their knees kind of sort of bend, they're, they're getting to where their elbows bend. But again, there's a wide variety of companies. I would probably say your average mannequin is going to be somewhere in like a sixty to eighty thousand dollar range. Then you have to look at: Are you needing laptops? You know, you have to still have the hardware to run them. And then again, you can get them cheaper, and then you can get them more expensive. We just bought a baby for thirty five thousand. Baby mannequin, just to be clear, in case yeah. somebody just, just did. Yes, we cannot buy a black market. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. An infant mannequin. So, wow, yeah. that was an extra yeah. zero than I expected. It's, so it's very expensive. And you know, the thing that people don't realize too is that you know, very often you put them on a real hospital bed, and if you want to practice using them with a monitor, you got to get a real monitor. And yeah. if you want to practice defibrillation, you got to get a real defibrillator. Um, and those so are all just a real cost savings, massive cost savings potential doing this with. VR, if you can. So do you have enough? Is there enough content, Ryan, to be able to go in and replace all the scenarios they could do with a mannequin yet? Or is... is Well, I think that's not necessarily a, a question of content. I mean, we do have, a, we have nearing 270 different scenarios, actually, for nursing physicians, military medics, and, and a bunch of others. And so we do have a wide variety of content environments. But I, I mean... I do think there are still some things that are hard to replicate in VR, especially if they need a tactile component to them. One of the benefits of these you know, high technology mannequins is you can intubate them. Some of them you can put IVs into. You can do other procedures on them as well. So if you want to integrate 
the practicing your tactile skills at the same time, then that is currently hard to do in VR. Now that said, I, at least when I did mannequin-based training, that wasn't the large majority of what we did. The large majority of what we did was much more diagnostic, treatment pathways, that sort of thing. And I do think most, if not all of that, translates pretty well to a VR environment. Yeah. I think it will be quite a while. Uh, you know, the, the tactile tools that exist in VR are still, still have a long way to go. Have you seen the new Haptics um, pneumatic suit? Oh, yeah. Oh, actually, I've not seen the pneumatic suit. Well, it's a it's a backpack and a and yeah. and yeah. Yeah, I know I know their team quite well actually. They just came out to Stanford last week, and we we've hung out with them many times. And they, that is, you know, one of the better tools in the market for sure. Um, but when you think about something like putting in a chest tube, right? I, gloves alone can't get you there because that's just resisting your fingers. And in fact, you can't even get there just by resisting all the way up the arm. You, you're using subtle body movements and things throughout. And so and many people think if you get the gloves good enough, then you can do procedures. But some procedures, yes, but a lot of procedures, it's going to take more than that before it actually feels real. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Nicole? No aspect of simulation is going to replace one or another. Simulation to me is just expanding and growing and we're learning how they all work together. There are things that are very uh, suitable for a standardized patient simulation, but then there are some that are more virtual reality or more mannequin based. And it really depends on what you're trying to educate who the learners are. Yeah. Have you played around with like mapping the virtual space to a less um, functional lower tech mannequin to give that tactical feed that tactile feedback and what's yeah. that look like? No, we, we've definitely done that, especially for like CPR training, where you know the, the tactile component is um, relatively contained and it's, it's easy to map. We've, we've done more complex ones as well, actually. We've mapped virtual characters over pericardiosynthesis trainers, so you can do that. And it's it's actually really cool. Um, it's a little finicky with current technologies, and so it's not been something that you know we've offered as a consolidated product, just because people have a hard enough time setting up their quests and their their focuses, right? So I think, I think as the as the the lidar sensors and the depth sensing cameras roll out on the camera, like the new XL uh, XR Elite, you know, the ability to use those to actually map to a surface is going to get a lot easier in the next couple of yeah. years. I agree. I agree. And and being able to have you know, the consistency of that mapping, you know, even getting people in and out of headsets and things like that is going to make that sort of thing way more viable. So last question I'd like to ask, if you had a, if a genie came out and granted you one wish for, you know, what the VR community or industry could deliver to make your jobs easier, to make the products more effective, to help it grow faster, what might, what might that wish be that you ask for? That's a good question. The, the hard, I, I, it's, it's, it's not hard to think of something. It's hard to think of what would be the one. <laughs> yeah. you, you can throw out a couple if um, it makes it easier. I think I'm going to take the more of the educator aspect. What seems to be happening in the VR education side of things is there is a lack of standardization in naming 
of things. And so when I say VR, what does that mean to me might be very different than what it means to you, Bob, or what it means to Ryan or someone else watching or, or listening to this podcast. So if we could just wake up tomorrow and everybody spoke the same language in virtual reality, that would be outstanding. Yeah, that's a challenge. <laughs> you told me I had a wish. No That's take back. <laughs> I kind of share that wish. I, I would say honestly, I, I, I think like reliability and consistency in how the hardware operates, like some of the quality of life stuff that probably would benefit um, just like normal civilian users would also be very beneficial in the medical space. Stuff like you know, take a headset out of the play space. And then bring it back in. What happens? Well, a lot of different things could happen depending on the state that it was in when you did that, and you know what, how often you've used that space. And that's a that's something that happens all the time in medical training contexts when you're trying to put the next person in. And there's a lot of little things like that about the functionality that I, actually I'll take back what I said earlier. They're probably a lot less concerning to an individual who's just there gaming. When you're using it back to back to back to back for trainees in an environment, those things become more pronounced and contribute to what Nicole was talking about earlier about trying to get you know a new location onboarded and get them used to it and get them figuring it out and able to solve their own problems. Yeah, because that first experience, too, you know, I, I I started a laser tag company and I remember you know on a Saturday afternoon we had back to back to back to back birthday parties and all of a sudden your laser the batteries were dead and you couldn't charge them fast enough and the moms were like, "What Johnny's party?" supposed to start 20 minutes ago yeah so i feel like we're at the same we're at that same stage with virtual reality right now and and if we could just reduce the friction to make it easier to move people in and out of it i think i think we'd see adoption rates skyrocket and i feel like we're on the verge of that i think the next year or two we'll see a sea change in that Uh, you know a new company just moved into the space that's known for creating great user experiences and i think they're gonna you know other companies will then mimic that and i think the whole industry is gonna respond to to those um to those usability standards so i'm looking forward to that happening mm-hmm. yeah, cool well i want to ryan nicole fascinating i can't wait to actually if i'm i'm actually in your neck of the woods ryan i know you're insanely busy but maybe if i could you know schedule something with enough notice i'd love to drop by and and i never yeah. get to cleveland sorry nicole are you in cleveland i was gonna say cleveland <laughs> we have a lake <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to, but I'd love to get, I'd love to see how this stuff works or maybe even just someday drop in Nicole and just observe some of the training and how it goes. I think it'd be fascinating and um, continue to grow the awareness of this, of this to try to, you know, ultimately it's about saving lives. And so I think it's, uh, yeah, it's good stuff. Thanks for pushing the envelope and driving this industry forward. I think it's, it's meaningful, meaningful work. And, and I thank you both. Yeah. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, cool. So this is uh, Bob Cooney. That's it. We will be back soon where we take a look at another market doing amazing things with VR today. Until then, from HTC Vive, uh, we're out.